Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Um, but there's actually been a split in the Reclaim group between uh, Burgress, who created a new group called the United Patriot Front, and the existing Reclaim Australia group. So the far-right great Aussie Patriot has put out a call for a mobilisation, uh, which is actually happening this Sunday at the Richmond Town Hall, um, to stop the left-wing hate train, that's what he's calling it, um, and a Muslim infiltration of society. Um, and to put that in perspective, I think about 2% of the population in Australia identifies as Muslim. Um, do they give more concrete details? of? They do. If you want to um, expose yourself to... Um, the kind of vile rubbish that they go on about. Um, just look up the great Aussie patriot on YouTube um, and yeah. you can dull your mind with that. I've, um, se- I've seen them. You've seen them. So the campaign against racism and fascism has um, called a counter-demonstration to meet at 11.30 um, to defend... Um, the great Richmond traditions, as they say, of solidarity and support for minorities um, because Richmond is a very multicultural suburb, uh, so it's quite alarming, I think, that they're planning this demonstration there. So we need to... I think that we need to make sure that we... Uh, that the left outnumbers um, the racists and the Islamophobes. Uh, so this action has been organised by a variety of organisations, so a number of anarchist groups... Um, a number of socialist groups um, as well as some feminist groups, uh, indigenous groups and anti-racist groups. So it's quite a broad uh, coalition. Um, And they've been having organising meetings. And on May 21st they released a statement um, on the mobilisations for Sunday. Um, And you can find this on their Facebook page. But they just point out a couple of things that reclaim was actually quite successful on April, on the 4th of April in um, aggregating racist and, face- and fascist forces throughout Australia um, and that this has been a long-term project of the far right for many years but that it has been stopped by the left so far. And what do they actually want, the, the fascist Oh, elements? well, some of their demands are things like they want to get rid of um, halal. Certification. Yeah, so... Right. Um, and there's been quite a bit of sort of backlash from that from various companies um, right. who obviously want to keep their halal certification and don't want to be identified with these people. Um, so that's one of their demands. Um, they also particularly identify the left um, as a problem. Um, and it seems the only thing that really unites um, all of the reclaim groups is their hatred for Muslims. Um, so uh, Reclaim has now split um, into uh, the right-wing racists and the sort of more out-and-out fascists. Um, and their components are still... Both components are still pretty dangerous. So uh, the coalition also points out that Reclaim has called something like... And the fascist groups have called something like 18 rallies to take place in various locations in the near future 
And on the 19th of July, they plan at least 14 rallies around Australia against Islam, against mosques. That's the other thing. One of their demands is trying to stop mosques being built. Right. Um, against the right to wear cultural dress, against Muslim businesses, against refugees and multiculturalism. And uh, the coalition is working... Well, the group is working with um, comrades around the country to counter each of these racist rallies. So on the 18th of July, we know that they plan at least one rally in Melbourne um, on all of the above issues. Um, however, in their pub publicity, they are describing it as retaliation against the Melbourne left for having successfully opposed them on April 4th. And um, the campaign group will be joining with No Room for Racism in a united counter-rally that stop, that will hopefully stop the Reclaim Australia movement. So on the 31st of May, which again is this Sunday, uh, the fascist components are promising a very aggressive rally against the Yarra City Council, the Socialist Party and prominent members of the Socialist Party, including... Stephen Jolly, Anthony Maine and Mel Gregson. And it's possible that some splinters of these fascist components will attempt to attack the meeting called uh, Uniting Against Islamophobia that will be held at the Multicultural Hub in Melbourne. So part of this mobilisation of the left in a counter-demonstration um, is about defending the meeting and about defending uh, the socialists that they particularly targeted. Um, and it's understood that we need a much wider movement and a much wider labour movement in the left um, and communities across Australia to counter this. However, it's a good start, I think. Um, that's what the campaign is saying. So, just get, finally, give us the announcement as to when and where, uh, Kim. Yes, well, it's going to be... Um, it's going to start at the Richmond Town Hall and the time has been um, moved to 12 o'clock. Um, and if people... Uh, want to find out more details and the things that um, the uh, campaign against racism and fascism have been posting, they can find it on, if they just type in the campaign against racism and fascism, they can find it on the Facebook page as well. But it'll be this Sunday at 12 o'clock. Alright, okay, good. Richmond okay. Town Hall. Am I too low here? I think I'm no, 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 you're right now. Oh, sounds loud to me. Okay. It would be really great to talk about uh, Dnipro, Dnipropetrovsk's success in the Europa League. They lost 2-3 in Thursday's final. For those who are interested, that was the team from the eastern Ukraine. But another football story has come to the fore. At the latest count, and this is ongoing, it's, it's moving quite fast, but at the latest count, 18 FIFA officials have been arrested on charges of corruption, all of them from the American continent. The officials were arrested in Switzerland, the home of football's governing body, but all face extradition to the US, as the FBI is behind these charges. Now, for anyone who's been following FIFA politics, especially since 2010, these arrests do not come as a surprise. However, the fact that they come on the eve of this weekend's FIFA presidential vote, and there's another vote too, is very interesting. For some background, FIFA is the International Federation of Association Football. Its job is to provide, preside over the 209 national associations which run the game in the different countries. It is 111 years old and has revenue in the billions of dollars. Its president since 1997 has been the now 79-year-old Sepp Blatter from Switzerland. He is due to compete in his fifth presidential election this weekend and it's an election that he is still amazingly expected to win. 
Allegations of corruption have been strongly leveled against the organisation since the awarding of the 2022 World Cup to Qatar five years ago. The voting process for that bid, where Australia was also a candidate, was seriously flawed. For example, the head of the Football Federation of Australia, Frank Lowy, stated openly at the time that he gave, he stated this, he gave $462,000 of taxpayers' money to Jack Warner, a voting delegate, to secure Warner's vote for Australia. This $462,000 went directly into Warner's personal bank account, and it stayed there, despite reported promises that the money would be spent on stadium development in Warner's homeland of Trinidad and Tobago. Even after taking our money... Warner voted for Qatar anyway, who we can only suppose gave him more than $462,000, <laughs> probably quite a bit more. The fact that Lowy handed this money over in order to buy a vote, I would suggest quite strongly, is corruption. Quite. Lowy, for his part, is anything but squeaky clean. Uh, he's a former member of a recognised Jewish terrorist organisation back during the British Mandate, uh, these organisations Haganah and Galani. Um, and he's a dual Israeli Australian citizen. He's uh, made his money, at least most of his money, I believe, as the former head of the West, Westfield Group of Shopping Centres and uh, is, of course, now Australia's soccer chief. He has an estimated fortune of between 5 to $7 billion, and on ABC Today, it listed that today's listing is that he is Australia's fourth richest person. He has been implicated in various activities, including massive tax fraud, which I believe he managed to avoid, and also conspiracy sets surrounding the events of 9-11. And I'm sure some of our listeners uh, know about him from the 9-11 stories. As the, head of, as the head of Australia's 2022 World Cup bid, Lowy was gifted $45 million from the federal government. MP Nick Xenophon is right to say that if corruption is proven, that $45 million should be handed back to us, the Australian taxpayers. Now, on the question of Qatar, because they won the bid, Qatar is hardly known as a leader in the area of football or any sport nor is it a leader in the area of human rights. Since Qatar won the hosting rights for the 2022 World Cup, it is estimated that over 1,200 workers have lost their lives in the construction work for this event. These workers are almost entirely poor Asian migrants who are forced to surrender their passports and live in squalid conditions for subsistence-level wages. Meanwhile, FIFA executives have allegedly pocketed hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes. Then when you think about this, just to put things in context, think about the players on the field. Lionel Messi is rated by many as the world's greatest sportsman. He earns over $1.5 million per week for his football and marketing capabilities. I mean, he's a great player, but... The question has always also been asked of this week's arrests. If we've known about, and we have, if we've known about this alleged corruption for so long, why is it only this week that action has been taken? And why has it involved the American FBI? The FBI might argue, I'm sure they would, that they have the best resources. So why would it take five years to build up a case against someone like Jack Warner? The former U.S. soccer chief Chuck Blazer, 
apparently his real name, Chuck Blazer admitted <laughs> to corruption in 2013. He admitted to it two, two years ago and reportedly went to work for the FBI. So even two years, I would suggest, seems a long time to get to get around to so pressing these charges. Did he get a job out of corruption? Chuck Blazer actually admitted to corruption, and so they, well, yeah, they used to do that at the Matthew They used guys. it as a plant, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they used that at the Matthew guys all the time, so they got him on side to work for the FBI to presumably bust these other blocks. Wow, corruption can be like a career. I, can, <laughs> I think he was doing all right. He would have been, if he hadn't been corrupt, he still would have been, you know, a multi-millionaire. They'd be getting paid very well anyway. And it seems, if you believe the... Well, what Frank Louis says, we don't really have any reason not to believe it, it seems to be normal that you hand over half a million dollars to secure a vote. That's normal. That's seen by these guys as uh, legitimate. Mm. So uh, it's quite profitable to be a soccer chief. He was the head of the American Federation, U.S. Um, but it's taken them an awful long time, and the, the, the timing is very suspicious, I, th- I think. This week, as well as having the FIFA presidential election, the organization was to have decided on whether to back a Palestinian uh, motion to suspend Israel for its systematic violation of Palestinian footballers' rights in the occupied territories. These violations are said to include preventing practice sessions and games, arresting players, denying entry to other teams, and bombing grounds, as we saw last year. During the recent recent Asian Cup held in Australia, the Palestinian team had to play without their first-choice goalkeeper, who was detained by Israeli authorities. And if you watch some of the games as I did, their results were there for all to see. They considered an awful lot of goals. It has been suggested that similar to the sporting boycotts of South Africa during the apartheid era, the BDS, that's Boycott Diversifying um, Sanction Campaign, the BDS boycotting of Israel is starting to affect Israel culturally. This is something which would add weight to the claim that Israel is an apartheid state, a view which clearly Israeli and US administrations wouldn't be happy with. Now, Frank Lowy is, is, is considered by many to be a Zionist. He has described the $462,000 attempted bribe of Jack Warner as an embarrassing mistake. <laughs> That's like John Howard with the uh, attack on Iraq. I mean, it's a, yes. a mere embarrassment. It's you know. very yes. expensive. Yeah, well, it, I think, I'm, I'm hoping myself personally, but along with Seth Blatter and a growing list of others, he could be embarrassed an awful lot more. Of course, I'm getting to the end here. Of course, the world game is a huge business. Uh, these exposures are making some of the world's biggest companies think twice about where they put their money. A withdrawal of funds from the likes of Adidas, Coca-Cola, Visa, Gazprom and Hyundai is highly possible if FIFA continues to smell so bad. I'll finish off with a quote from one of my great heroes, the um, Argentinian player Diego Maradona. Diego is no stranger to controversy, but I like his view of events this week because he has been speaking out about FIFA corruption for years. And he said... I was treated like a crazy person. There is no soccer. There is no transparency. Enough lying to people and enough dinner parties to re-elect Blatter. It's not just about Blatter, though. The money spent on that should be used to give kids in Africa a soccer field. Fair enough. Uh, but this is, this is ongoing. I think it will get a lot bigger. Well, the fall of Ramadi, the capital of 
Iraq's Ambar province has uh, led to a series of charges and countercharges as to who's responsible. The debacle reprised the collapse of you know, Iraqi security forces uh, in Mosul, uh, Iraq's second largest city, nearly a year ago. Well, the US De- Secretary of Defence, Ashton Carter, was the most blatant, declaring that the Iraqi forces who melted away in the f- face of ISIS offensive lacked the will to fight. He says this from the safety of 12,000 miles away, <laughs> mind you. <laughs> but from when within the Iraqi government and the security forces, as well as from Iran, there's been another explanation for the failure of the US intervention launched in August last year to defeat ISIS. That is that Washington has no real desire to eliminate the Islamic forces, its war on terror rhetoric notwithstanding. Brigadier General Kurt Kreitzer, uh, held a, 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 speaking before the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference, reported that it is widely believed in Iraq, including within security forces, that the Pentagon is resupplying ISIS. Now, this would go against the impression you get in the paper that the Americans and ISIS are at polar opposites and at war with each other. Well, yes, they are and they aren't. The result, the general added, was that US forces were at risk of attack from Iraqis who were fighting ISIS. This is the government that the Americans are backing, the, the Iraqi government, but they're also backing ISIS. So when, when the... Um, when the Iraqis are fighting ISIS, what are the Americans going to do? And he cited an attempt by the Iraqi forces to shoot down a US helicopter. Why? Because it was believed to be ferrying arms to the Islamicists and friction between American troops and the Iraqi counterparts. This is the mess they've got themselves into. He gave no indication, the general, why such a narrative would resonate so broadly amongst the people of Iraq while the media covering the address referred to the charge, change of, charge of U.S. support for ISIS as a conspiracy theory, which is, of course, the way the establishment has of writing off any, any proposal they don't like. The United States government has, in response to a Freedom of Information Act filed by the right-wing Judicial Watch Group, declassified a series of documents, including one secret report produced by the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, dated August 12, 2012. While Judicial Watch has focused entirely on the document's supposed substantiation of Republican claims that the Obama administration, and Hillary Clinton in particular, lied about the armed attack on the Benghazi consulate and the CIA facility in 2012, it and similar right-wing outfits studiously ignore the far deeper implications of the August report. This document predicts that If the situation unravels, there is a possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salvarist principality in eastern Syria, that is, an Islamic Republic, and that this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the regime. In other words, the Americans are supporting ISIS and arming them because they're gambling that it's more important to eliminate secular competitors to US power in the region mm-hmm. than it is to stem the rule of these uh, completely deranged Islamic Islamic they fighters. Need, they need sectarianism to rule. Yeah, That's it, right. It's not in, you know, it was a divide and conquer, but it's not entirely against American interest to have these guys squabbling amongst squabbling, killing themselves. 
It's not entirely against American uh, interests. No, 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 but it's going much further than that. They're using ISIS as an instrument of policy. Mm. And that policy, of course, is that their first priority is to get rid of rivals to U.S. power in the yeah, region. And that would include Iraq and yeah. obviously uh, Assad in Syria. Mm. It should be realised that this document was issued among steadily escalating U.S. support for the so-called rebels in Syria. With the CIA setting up a secret station in Turkey near the Syrian border to coordinate the fueling of arms, money and supplies to these forces, which, is, which as was clearly known at the time, were dominated by Islamist elements such as Al-Qaeda. And while they saw the spread of such a state to neighbouring Iraq as a likely danger, they considered this a chance worth taking in order to prosecute their proxy war for regime change directed against Damascus and Syria's backers, who of course Iran, Russia and China. If Washington is pulling its punches in its supposed war on ISIS, it is not, as the New York Times absurdly suggested this week, out of concern for killing civilians. The US has butchered hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the last dozen years. Rather, the United States wants to preserve the Islamic gunmen who constitute the principal fighting force in its proxy war to topple Assad, just as it employed similar forces to overthrow and murder Libya's Gaddafi. They are making their decisions based on strategic calculations in which elements such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS are merely pawns in a far wider drive to, do to get US hegemony or domination by means of aggression and war. Now that's all I wanted to say on that. I did think it was necessary that we return very briefly to the uh, to the, the budget because it's become even more uh, apparent that despite the sheen of fairness on this budget as compared to last as compared year's, to last as year. compared to last year's, basically all they come, can come out and say is that it's boring. Well, that's right. In other words, please don't look at the details. Please don't look at the details. What? I was like, you turn it down. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, we've, we've got new microphones here. This is what the problem. Two analyses of the federal uh, budget have spread some light on its severe impact on the incomes of working class families, as well as the cutting of billions of dollars from welfare, health and education and other services. The reports demonstrate that the majority of households, that is the bottom 60%, will lose between two and $6,000 a year by the year 2018. The poorest 20% of families will lose the most, up to 6 to 8% of their disposable income. Those on middle incomes will also suffer badly, while the wealthiest households will actually gain. This disparity highlights the fraud of the fairness gloss uh, being poured out by hockey and, and, uh, over this year's budget and, and the mass media. Neither report, however, refers to the deep cuts to welfare and social spending inflicted by the previous Labor government, which established the basis for the Abbott government to do much worse. As an example of a poor household, a couple on a single income of $40,000, with children, say, one in primary and one in high school, would lose $110.45 a week by the year 2018, or $5,700 annually, a total of 19000 over four years. That's more than 7% of their disposable income. It's not just that the poorest households would suffer. 
many sections of the working class would lose substantial amounts. According to the model, a dual family income on 120000 which is quite a salary, with two high school children, will lose up to $62 a week. So it's not just the very poor, it's everybody but the rich. Yet families on incomes of more than 120000 approximately the 10, 20, top 20% of families, will receive a small 0.2 increase in their incomes. That is their measure of their sacrifice. The models, the modelling included the government's plan to stop family tax benefits when the youngest child turns six. This NATSEM findings comes two days after the Australian Council of Social Services produced a report as well, showing that the two Abbott government budgets would cut about $15 billion over four years from basic services. These include $6 billion in cuts to family payments, a billion-dollar decrease in health spending, a $126 million cut from child dental programs, I mean, how? and $674 million from affording housing and homelessness programs. Another billion will come from community services, including $500 million from Aboriginal services and programs. I mean, this is absolutely scandalous. These community services are needed for the people in greatest need, such as those experiencing family crisis or family background, children at risk, vulnerable young people, new mothers, people facing eviction and homelessness, and the carers in need of respite, those struggling with drug and alcohol conditions, all these people will suffer. The two reports don't factor in, however, the impact of other far-reaching budget measures, such as the freezing of Medicare rebates for doctors, which will force more GPs to charge upfront fees, and harsher asset testing of aged pensions. Nor did the studies include the big and second cut in this year's budget, worth $1.7 billion over four years, a fairness campaign designed to clamp down on suspected welfare fraud. And anybody who's been on the dole will know that this is... uh, uh, you know, the doll that hasn't been raised for how many years has the doll not been been it's raised? Like twenty years, but twenty years, well below the poverty line. But they're the people you've got to tackle, not the rotors, yeah, the tax not avoiders. the companies, not the tax avoiders. He said he would do something about them. He's, he's well, done. what Hot he did out. do was he cut he cut funding to the income tax department, mm. which was investigating the rich people. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so that makes it easier. Yeah. Uh, of course, so, Tony Abbott dismissed these uh, various findings as uh, Scott Morrison said, oh, well, the best form of welfare is a job. Brilliant thinker. Brilliant well, thinker. it's also absolute rubbish too because every study has shown that the amount of so-called fraud in Centrelink is far outweighed by the number of benefits that people are actually entitled to and that remain unclaimed. I don't claim, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The response makes explicit the conscious drive to dismantle welfare entitlements. That's what they're about. The purpose is not just to slash government spending and hence provide greater tax concessions to business and the wealthy, but to force jobless workers into super-exploited employment. Labor's leader Shorten claimed to oppose all the same unfairness and pain for families hidden in the fine print of the budget. But remember, Labor, together with the Greens, voted for the bulk of the cuts in last year's budget in order to prevent a political crisis, and they're preparing to vote for the main appropriation bills this year. 
Labor's last budget in 2013 launched the austerity drive in a bid to satisfy the demands of the financial elites as the mining boom began to unravel. The 2013 budget set in motion a series of permanent cuts to health, education and social welfare, starting with $43 billion worth of spending cuts and tax increases over the four years, aimed at working-class family and low-income earners. Labor plunged thousands of single parents into poverty by eliminating parent payments and forcing them onto unemployment benefits. The Rudd and Gillard government also kept unemployment benefits at below poverty rates to ensure that enough workers filled the low-wage, insecure jobs being offered by increasing numbers by corporate Australia. So don't be fooled, as I'm sure you're not, by the... uh, puff of fairness for this budget. It's continuing the work of the first budget. All they've done is torn off the cover of the first budget and put a new cover on. Same content, different cover. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.